Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Better Movement podcast. My guest this week is Paul Ingraham, author of the amazing website painscience.com. Paul's website is basically a Wikipedia of everything that's worth knowing about how to solve problems related to musculoskeletal pain. For example, if you have heel pain uh, and want to learn about plantar fasciitis uh, to treat it or help someone else treat it, you can find readable summaries of almost everything credible that has ever been written about plantar fasciitis on Paul's site. The information is evidence-based, thoroughly researched and referenced. It's practical, well-written, and filled with uh, humor and common sense and personality. So uh, as you can tell, I have a huge amount of respect for the vast amount of quality work Paul has done in his website. I'm jealous of it, and I recommend that everyone uh, go there if they have problems related to pain. In this podcast, we talked about how Paul got into science writing, his prior work as a massage therapist, how he got involved in the skeptic community, and his work as an editor at the Science-Based Medicine blog. We also talked about Paul's recent and significant challenges with chronic pain and other medically unexplained health problems and the role that neuroinflammation might play in helping uh, to explain these kinds of complex chronic health problems. Here we go. Paul Ingraham, thank you for coming on my podcast. You are welcome. I'm happy to be here. That's good. All right. So uh, we've known each other for years. I've been reading your amazing blog. It used to be called SaveYourself.ca. It's now PainScience.com. That's right? That's right. Yeah. Spent several years with SaveYourself.ca until I got absolutely sick of that name. Shouldn't, shouldn't have used it. It was never a good idea. And uh, moved on to PainScience.com in 2015. I mean, that site, what I always kind of, my impression when I go to it is it's like Wikipedia. I mean, one of my impressions is how in the world have you managed to do so much high quality work on that site and get so much done? I mean, my site's got the measly bunch of articles on it compared to yours. How many articles do you have? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> the number doesn't actually impress me that much when I say it. It's, it's a, you know, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200. Um, I actually just removed several crufty old articles from the site in the last little while. I think it was 233 when I started and now it's 190 or something. Um, but a lot of those articles are huge. They're big. Yeah. It's so yeah, the number is not that big. I've got 200, but I mean, you've got, I mean, how much have you written on like frozen shoulder? How many words? Uh, well, all of that's in one place. There's just one tidy package of frozen shoulder information. Uh, so I've written one medium sized book about that. And I, think that one's about words. Uh, but of course, a, a lot of that content is related to, you know, it's, it's brought in from other parts of the site and consolidated and, and uh, massaged so that it fits the topic of a frozen shoulder. And so if you count all the other stuff that I've written, that's closely related, it easily hundred thousand words. That's insane. I mean, that's a book right there, but uh so, I mean, just so everyone knows, your website is a collection of evidence-based information on a wide variety of musculoskeletal conditions and pain science itself. T tell us more in your own words, like what the site is about, what's there. Sure. Uh, it started out as a self-help site for my uh, client. 
Hence, when I was with, uh, so the original spirit of it was, you know, helping people with their aches and pains. Um, and then uh, around uh, the end of the 2000s, I started turning it into something a little more ambitious and broader in scope. Uh, I think of it as a sister site to sciencebasedmedicine.org. Um, it is the SBM of aches and pains medicine. And uh, that is slowly taking me into topics I never would have dreamed about uh, when I began. Uh, when I started, it was focused on the kinds of things that a massage therapist would typically deal with um, and got a little bit ambitious because I was marketing myself as a pain troubleshooter at the time, uh, which makes me cringe now. <laughs> the, the idea that I was selling myself at a, at a good hourly rate as a troubleshooter for tough chronic pain problems back then, oh, the things I didn't know <laughs> blows my mind. Um, so, you know, I, even back then I was thinking in terms of tough chronic pain problems, but that's become much more the focus over time. And in the last few years, um, especially as I have become a chronic pain patient, I have uh, started to look at any kind of tough chronic pain problem, not just the, uh, the pseudo-mechanical, the, the musculoskeletal, uh, used to be mostly about physical things, body problems, injuries, rehab. Uh, now I'm getting into more complex and messy and fascinating and bizarre topics like fibromyalgia, for instance. Yeah. So, I mean, I see this basic trajectory here where you used to be a massage therapist. You were helping people uh, deal with chronic pain as a massage therapist. And at the time, your your understanding, your belief was that uh, you have a relatively good ability to figure out why someone hurts and, and to help them. And as you studied it more and more and more, this just became a larger and larger rabbit hole. And as you learn more and more science, you kind of become aware of what you don't know, and that leads to more exploration. And then after a little while, you've got a website with like a million words on it about this yeah. and less confidence. <laughs> so you, you've learned a million things, yeah. but one of the things you've learned is that it's really, really, really hard to solve problems related to pain, as in diagnosing this is why something hurts and this is what exactly what you need to do to fix it. Yeah, which is why I cringe now that I considered myself to be a pain troubleshooter back in the 2000s, because now I know that that's a really hard job and an extremely hard problem. One of the hardest problems there is. And, and, uh, and, and at the bottom of every rabbit hole, there's another rabbit hole. <laughs> I mean, this, yeah. the, the, the idea of the rabbit hole doesn't even begin to cover it. Uh, I used to think of, of this subject matter as a niche, you know, this is tiny little slice of the world of medicine. And in a way it is relative to everything else in medicine, it is only a small slice of that pie chart, but that slice contains multitudes. There's a cosmos of complexity in that tiny little slice. And it just goes on and on and on. And I'm still learning at an accelerated rate. Um, in fact, it seems like I just keep picking up speed as my skills improve. The, the more I learn, the faster I learn more. And the faster I learn more, the more I learn that I still have to learn more faster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, when I, when I go to your site and read, this is one of the things that I really appreciate about you is your willingness 
to admit places that you've been wrong. That's that's incredible. That's a high level of integrity. I really appreciate it. Uh, your interest in continuing to learn. And I was recently there and looking at uh, your most recent work on connections between medically unexplained symptoms and fibromyalgia and neuroinflammation and the way the immune system works with the nervous system. And I want to talk about that kind of in detail a little bit more later, but kind of what I'm interested in talking about now is your kind of personal trajectory kind of moving along this, you know, kind of different way of thinking. Start us out with, uh, you know, your first interest in science. Were you always interested in science as a kid? Were you a science fiction guy, Carl Sagan? How did that, how did that start? I was not interested in science. I thought it was icky. Uh, <laughs> I avoided it in high school. It seemed hard. And I could easily excel uh, in the humanities. Uh, so I, I could get A pluses in high school as long as I avoided science classes. <laughs> so I did. I avoided science classes. Um, I was already a, a writer then and, and already showing every sign of um, of doing my metacognition on the page. I need to write about things to understand them. For some some reason, there's something about me. An idea isn't real until I've rephrased it seven times. <laughs> so I'm a natural writer, uh, but I hated science. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people who thought math was boring and and I don't know that I actually thought science was boring. I think, I think I just thought it was hard. It was too hard. And I wasn't interested in hard for some reason back then. Whereas now I'm like, yeah, give me, give me hard stuff. I want to do the hard stuff. Cause that's where, you know, that's where the action is. That's what's interesting in, in life. Uh, but I didn't have that attitude then much to my regret. And uh, I spent all of my twenties basically as a flaky new age magical thinker. Um, I never met a crazy idea I didn't love and desperately wanted the world to be full of psychics and visiting aliens. And um, I was, uh, I was never, I, I did read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid, but I was more of a fantasy fan. That was a better fit for me. Fit nicely, <laughs> yeah. fit nicely with the magical thinking. Yeah. I, when I was a teenager, I actually believed that I was uh, that I had mind powers. Um, I, just just recently on the uh, Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast, they were talking. Oh, about, Steve Novella, right? Yeah, Steve Novella, also the uh, the uh, leader of science based medicine and fantasy prone personality. I think that's what they were talking about. That there's a there's a phenotype out there. There's a there's such a thing as people who experience imaginative ideas quite intensely, and they tend to be at the heart of every um, claim about psychic powers. Or you know, you, you basically you find any ongoing debate controversy about whether or not something fantastical is real or not. Somewhere at the heart of it, there's a fantasy fantasy prone personality, and. Man, when I heard that, I thought that that has got to be me because it just every I didn't just like crazy ideas when I was young. I dove into them and took them on, embraced them, you know, and there was a there was a very embarrassing period in my early teens when I was walking around this earth thinking that I was, you know, some kind of um, young wizard or something. 
was terrible. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing how different human beings can become from what they were. Um, well, yeah, this so, sounds yeah. like a this sounds like a super this sounds like a superhero origin story. So, what's the, yeah. what's the you know what happens? You know, you, you, so so you're on top of a building, and now I'm going to fly, and then you hit the ground, and then you. Well, how does this work? What what brings you into contact with reality? Um, I, I there was nothing predisposing me, obviously, to breaking free of this, uh, but it ha- it happened while I was in massage therapy training. Um, which just for quick context for for probably an international audience here, the massage therapy training I was doing was quite intensive. It was a three-year, 3,000-hour program here in British Columbia, Canada, uh, where at the time, not so much anymore, not, not as long in education now, but at the time, there was a really strong push to medicalize massage therapy, legitimize it, bring it into the medical system. So higher training standards, higher certification standards. And I was in the middle of that when I read Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World. And although it took years to uh, turn around, that is absolutely the specific event that started it, started the change. Um, I, I was so pissed off at Carl. I liked Carl. I remembered Cosmos fondly from when I was young. And I, I oh, but I was just so upset by the things that I read in that book, but I couldn't put it down. And then I read it again. As, you know, as soon as I was done, I went right back to the beginning and started over and uh, got a little less huffy and started to think. And the journey towards skepticism had begun. And within, you know, it, it was fast in the scale of my life, but I think it took at least three more years uh-huh. before I had actually started to get any kind of good at critical analysis. Um, I remember in my first, you know, so I read maybe Demon Hunter World in 98, I think. And by 2001, 2002, my first couple of years in practice, I can remember talking skeptically to my clients and raising my eyebrows at the things, the claims that we were discussing. Uh, So it, it had begun, but it was many, many years yet before I really embraced skepticism and critical analysis. How'd that go talking with the clients? I mean, you know, clients come into you for massage. Not all of them want to hear, you know, this evidence-based skeptical minded type of uh, an attitude from their practitioner. And also there's kind of like an early convert enthusiasm people tend to have for skepticism when they first Get it, which is kind of unappealing (laughs) until it's toned down a lot. So how how did this first go when you're kind of like dealing with, you know, being skeptical with your clients? Well, I was I was uh, cushioned by the fact that I wasn't really a skeptic yet. Uh, My uh, no zealot like a convert phase probably didn't come until 2007 and eight. We'll get there uh, because reasons that we'll get to. Um, But in that early phase, I mean, I was still doing um, Qigong. I was teaching Tai Chi and Qigong on the beach. I was still very, very, um, you know, I, I, I had my, my Flake membership card and all the credibility of that, you know, talking about these things. So I don't think clients felt too threatened. But most importantly is I just never, at the beginning, at the end, at no time did I ever, uh, quote unquote, debunk in the treatment room. That's, that... I think it was just always obvious to me. I had the emotional IQ to see that that wasn't going to fly. 
Um, so I had a very strict policy that, you know, I, I talk very diplomatically about uh, these things when asked. Simple as that. So if yeah. a client says, what do you think of posturology? What do you think of spinal adjustment? You know, step one, what do you think? Tell me what you think. Start, let's start there. And, and then carefully, gradually talk about my doubts and my questions and ask questions. Uh, lots of uh, jacking off, just asking questions. <laughs> so so you, was- were, you were into stuff like, you know, like you said, the Qigong, the, so some self-improvement stuff, yeah. uh, so maybe some wisdom tradition stuff. I was into a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my my contact with a much more common evidence-based and skeptical mindset about that kind of thing was not so much to say, oh, these practices aren't worth that much, but to say, they're good, but I just have a different way of understanding them. I can speak the language of yoga. I can speak the language of martial arts because I've been there a little bit. I can speak the scientific language as well. And I can kind of translate back and forth uh, between them and kind of like, you know, pick the diamond from the dunghill or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like avoid the the stuff that's not helpful from those traditions, but still take advantage of stuff that is helpful. How much are you still, you know, kind of practicing some of the kind of self-improvement or health practices that you started with you mm-hmm. know, in one form or another? Uh, if you stretch that, you know, in one form or another far enough, you could say that I'm still doing quite a bit of it. Um, but I've certainly gotten more, you know, mainstream and boring in my approach to health and fitness and wellness. And probably the closest thing I, you know, I do to, to anything uh, that anyone would consider flaky is uh, meditation. Um, and I don't really think of it as meditation, although it meets the definition. Um, and I don't do it very successfully and I don't do it very often, but I still go through phases where I do that, where I do deliberate, you know, conscious breathing exercises and so on. Uh, but mostly, um, mostly I've become more of a jock. <laughs> I, really, I really love sports now. Well, one, I love one sport. I love ultimate who are we kidding i'm not a i'm not a general jock i am i am an ultimate frisbee player but you're an accomplished frisbee player yes i am i can throw a frisbee really really well <laughs> and i'm and i'm still fast despite all my problems I, i'm pretty quick despite everything Excellent. Uh, so i love that sport and everything i do you know with my health and my fitness is in service of chasing plastic that's, you know, it, it, it's, that's all what it comes down to. Can I get to that disc faster? That's <laughs> yeah. To me, that's the bottom line. You know, when I see people that are, that are really, cause I'm about chasing balls, you know, to me, it's all, yeah. I, I'm, it's like, I'm like a dog. It's like, I can't be made to run unless I'm chasing a ball. And when yeah. I see people that are like really fast runners, they're like, I ran a marathon and this fast, or I can, I can run a 5k. I'm like, that yeah. would be really useful for soccer. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Why would you want to do it if you're not chasing a ball? I can chase some great ball doing that. (laughs) Just uh, just yesterday, I attempted um, one of the fastest runs ever, and it was specifically inspired by uh, a tweet from uh, Greg Lehman recently about uh, a new speed walking record. Uh, You you saw this, yeah? I don't like that speed walking stuff. Those guys aren't really walking. They're running. I, it's hard for me to believe they can run that fast or walk that oh, fast. I can't I run that. Wanna, I don't want to believe it. I can't do it. I couldn't do it. 
that that lady was going four minutes per kilometer. That's faster than my best day. And yesterday I went out and tried to get close to, I knew I wouldn't be able to match it, but I tried to get close to it. I couldn't do it. I, I could not sustain uh, five minutes per kilometer um, for more than a couple of minutes. And, uh, and she did four minutes per kilometer for 20 kilometers. That's, that's uh, impossible to understand. It is. It's genuinely difficult. So I'm, you know, I'm really enthusiastic about my, uh, my fitness as much as my health problems will allow um, these days. So I, yeah, there's not much, there are not many vestiges left of, uh, you know, the, the Qigong Tai Chi martial arts doing guy that I was back in the early 2000s. Well, let's talk about uh, your involvement in the skeptic community, because you weren't just someone that was kind of reading a few skeptic books. You started communicating with people online, and this eventually, I, I think, led you in the direction of working for that science-based medicine yeah. blog headed up by Steve Novella, who's one of the leading skeptics in the country and you know, just kind of a hero of mine in terms of his broad-ranging intelligence and his integrity and his ability to talk about why we, it's important for us to believe <laughs> things that are actually true. Tell us, how did you get involved in the actual community? What was that like? Yeah, I, I mean, it all happened very quickly and for a very specific reason. Um, I met Steve Novella at a party at a skeptics conference in 2008, I think. And uh, and I was there recruiting help of that community um, uh, because I was in a weird kind of trouble and I needed I needed allies and skeptics appeared to be uh, my natural allies. Um, so I met Steve. Uh, Can you tell us about the trouble? Oh yeah. 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 I'll circle back to that. <laughs> yes. um, but it, 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 uh, meeting, meeting Steve really, it was the, you know, it was the, the, the nugget at the center of it all. Um, in a relatively short conversation, maybe 20 minutes or so I, I, you know, I basically went from, I'm a fish out of water here, and this is all very weird for me. To um, how about I help you? Um, how about I do some, you know, web publishing and editorial help with uh, sciencebasedmedicine.org? And the next thing I knew, I was doing that and and getting a crash course in critical analysis and learning at an accelerated rate. It's hard to imagine how I could have learned faster or better or from better people. Uh, than I did in that role. And it was just, it was just achieved by volunteering. I just said, can I, can I help? I, I like what you're doing. Can I help? But it's relevant to what I'm doing. So I'm going to learn a lot. And, and he said, sure. And so I did. And, uh, and, you know, with, within a, you know, certainly, I guess almost overnight, I was a card carrying skeptic at that point. I, I loved what I saw at that conference and I loved what I saw in that community. Um, and uh, and so I was very uh, very eager to adopt my new identity, and I certainly had the no zealot like a convert thing. Like basically every baby skeptic, I was too enthusiastic, had no idea how little I knew, <laughs> and was just super eager to debunk things as hard as debunk, possible. Debunk, debunk, debunk. Yeah. Well, there's. I think that's that's kind of what what I wanted to talk about is that is that I noticed in the skeptic community, I'm not really involved. I, you know, I kind of. I'm interested in what they have to say. I don't have the involvement that you do, uh, but I note I noticed different. There's different styles in, in this community, and I think that there's debates that go on in the community. 
maybe kind of like about how negative to be. So, I mean, you can you can go about your business of debunking things in a way that's kind of like uh, rude or dismissive or impolite or, or, or maybe even kind of being biased on the side of this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Or you can do it in a way that's that's much more kind of polite and, you know, big tent and not trying to offend anybody. And, you know, even within your SBM group, you have some of the people there, uh, like Novella is extremely polite and doesn't mm-hmm. really offend anyone with his, uh, with his debunking, although it did get him sued. We'll talk about that <laughs> in a minute. Oh, he, he's found some people who were offended by his <laughs> No one's going to get offended. And then there's some people that just, that, that are more like, this is all nonsense. This is the people yeah. that believe this are dumb. But talk about your experience kind of navigating these different approaches to skepticism. Yeah, sure. And, and maybe this would be a good time to go back and explain why was I asking skeptics for help? And oh, so yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's important context. So let's let's go there. Um, I, and, you know, probably a lot of people watching this, listening to this, know this story to one degree or another. So I won't go into excruciating detail or anything, but uh, I got hassled by my professional regulator here in B.C., um, which a- appeared to be a collaborative effort inspired by complaints from chiropractors who were very unhappy with things that I was saying about chiropractic on my website at the time. Uh, so I was um, uh, the, the regulator here in BC. That's the, you know, the organization that granted my, my license to practice uh, massage therapy um, became concerned and started an investigation into my professionalism and this was, you know, basically a direct response to me saying mean things about common pseudoscientific beliefs and practices. Well, in- it wasn't just mean things. You were you were providing an evidence-based critique of some of the claims made by chiropractors. Yes. Uh, mean, it wasn't mean- just you went and said a bunch of mean stuff. It was like, this is vital information that the public needs to know. Yeah. Now, mean is sarcastic. Uh, there yeah. are scare quotes around my mean. And I, I was pretty sassy back then, but even, even then I sassy I'm, shouldn't be illegal. I, sassy is not, it should not be a problem. And, uh, and, it, and, and really in retrospect, not even in retrospect, how I said it at the time, you know, this is, this is just not that it's not that saucy. Right. I mean, there's, there's nothing very harsh here. Uh, and in fact, always one of the great ironies is that, you know, that one of the passages that had upset uh, some chiropractors, you know, mo- most intensely. Uh, in the in that very same passage, I talk about liking chiropractic adjustment and seeking it out for myself, um, of, of actually embracing it and enjoying it and finding it useful at times. Um, but uh, they didn't like my tone. And so this investigation began and it did not blow over. You know, it could easily have been just a, a little kerfuffle and you know, a few a few sternly worded letters, and that might have been it. Uh, but it didn't it didn't blow over. It it became a big thing, and it kept going. And I needed to recruit allies. I felt extremely threatened. It felt like my career was at stake, uh, and my reputation was at stake. It was a really big deal at the time. And long blown over now, but at the time it was extremely stressful. And but I mean, it, it tells you that, uh, you know, what, what's out there, the threat is there and it's going to affect your future behavior. Yeah. And it's, it was a template. It, 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 uh, it was hardly the last time that I was to be, you know, harassed and hassled uh, by people who were upset 
by the things that I was writing as politely as I possibly could. And, uh, and so I recruited help. And uh, it was, you know, I, I think part of the reason that I embraced skepticism as hard as I did, I, I really was just, all the planets were aligned for it. There's an ironic metaphor to use. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, I was so ready for that. It, it, it suited me in every possible way, including that I needed help with, uh, you know, a clear and present danger in my life. And that community was ideally suited to do so. And, you know, the, one of the first people that I met at a local, uh, uh skeptical meeting here in Vancouver, um, my, uh, my buddy, Dr. Rob Tarswell, um, he, uh, I mean, we, I think we talked for about five minutes before he said, sounds like you could use some help from someone with a bunch of credentials. And, and he delivered. I mean, it was amazing how generous and how competent these people seemed to me. And, uh, and their, their aid was invaluable to me at the time. And, uh, and so I just dove in and was very excited to become a skeptic and discover that world. And that lasted for about two years. Um, and then I, I think probably two things changed. And, you know, Zoom ahead several years, I certainly still consider myself uh, a skeptic, but not really a member of the community. Not yeah. a card-carrying skeptic anymore. Yeah, you certainly believe that it's important to critically analyze medical claims and that those claims should be held to standards of evidence and that we should look to science for the truth, but you're not necessarily involving yourself in communities that call themselves skeptics. Yeah. 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 And in, and in fact, you know, it, it's not just benign neglect. I actively remove myself. The first thing that happened was the skeptical community itself suffered a crisis um, uh, elevator gate is the is the key word for anyone who wants to look up what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, basically, it was it was revealed that an awful lot of people in the skeptics community were uh, uh, misogynists, and uh, and more broadly speaking, just it was it became very clear, very nastily clear that this community, like all tribes, like all communities was fragmented and had a, you know, a diversity of people in it and they did not all get along. And it, it really took the shine off hard. That was a rough time for the skeptical community. Um, and another uh, pivotal moment was uh, Phil Plate, uh, the bad astronomers, uh, don't be a dick speech at a skeptical conference, which I loved. And to me, to me, it was just pure good sense. It was pragmatic, decent, message that he was putting out. Um, and, and yet that, that was an incredibly controversial speech. The idea of not being a dick was somehow really difficult for a lot of skeptics to swallow, which tells you something about that community. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's some people show up because they think it's a license to be a dick. I mean, I, yeah. having been a lawyer and gone to law school, I can say that, you know, 90% of the people there yeah. are interested in truth and justice and, and using the tools that are taught there as, as, a, uh, as a way to do that. And, and they're good, motivated people with good intentions. I think lawyers get kind of a bad rap. But if you are the kind of person that wants to beat That's up lawyer. people uh, with a bunch of legal rules and, yeah. uh, and, and arguments and have kind of a, a shield to hide behind and say, I'm just being a lawyer, 
yeah. uh, you're you're going to go to law school. And so it does attract a small percentage of bad actors yeah. who are going to abuse their privileges to, to use kind of legal arguments and legal techniques to just be a dick just because they kind of want to be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah I, I assume something similar happens in the skeptical community. Some people just really like to argue. They like to feel smarter than other people. They like to say, you're the dumb one. And, mm-hmm. and those people are overrepresented in skeptical communities. Yep, absolutely. And so the next thing that happened was I started interacting with an awful lot of what I, you know, what I would now describe as amateur skeptics. And the the fatal flaw in the skeptical community, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who love to you know to criticize the skeptical community. Well, here's how, here's here's what you need to know. Um, uh, most of what skeptics are accused of by by their butthurt critics is nonsense. But certain things deserve to stick. And the the kind of the most important lesson about how to think critically. Uh, is that it all applies to us. It applies to the critical thinker. We are absolutely vulnerable to the same cognitive distortions, biases, thinking errors as the people we are debunking. So there, there is a serious chronic fatal flaw amongst amateur skeptics not recognizing that the they are also guilty of biases and thinking errors all the time. And, you know, there's, there's no sure way of identifying, um, you know, someone who ha- only has a toe in the world of skepticism, and that is their overconfidence. They think they know more about how to think uh, than they actually do. And, I've, you know, seen a lot of this over the last decade, uh, and and it's it, it it has directly resulted in me yeah, slowly, politely backing away. Uh, I, you know, still very much consider myself a skeptic and a critical thinker, but I don't really have much interest in being labeled that way uh, or participating in the community. Um, although I am, I have to say, blessed um, with an unusually progressive and cool group of local skeptics. Uh, I don't have to worry about running into the bad skeptics here in Vancouver for some reason. Just lucked out. Some really great people in the community here. And I often regret that I don't get to see them more often. Uh, but in general, yeah, kind of kind of done with being a capital S skeptic. I right, just right. understand things. Well, I, I loved what you said about uh, all the rules of skepticism apply to skeptics and and uh, and the failure of a lot of people to to realize that all the biases they're learning about are also uh, ever present within themselves and need to be constantly examined. And this is something that I love so much about your work uh, on your websites. You're you I've I've seen lots of articles uh, from you. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. What can you? Can you kind of like take us through some of the biggest things you've changed your mind? It's probably a long list, but what, what are some of the big things you've changed your mind about, you know, maybe more recently in the past five years? I mean, there'd be a huge list of things that you that you changed your mind about since you were a massage therapist, but but only in the last few years. What are things that you kind of got wrong and now change your mind about? Yeah, uh, well, the, I mean, the, the whopper 
you know, the, the big one, and it's a really hairy topic and, and we, it could take over the podcast <laughs> if we're not careful. And, but, you know, I started out as, as, you know, what a skeptic would call a true believer in uh, trigger points. And now I have a much more nuanced position about it. Um, I did not flip to the polar opposite. I didn't become a trigger point skeptic in the sense that I, I don't dismiss the, the idea or the topic as useless today, uh, but I certainly went through a major transition, uh, you know, where an enormous amount of my work was um, uh, built on the foundation of belief in these little sore spots as being you know, extremely clinically important. It defined my career as a massage therapist I think it's I think it's fair to say that I've never gotten anything more wrong in my whole life. Um, you know, I, I spent I spent years way too convinced of my own knowledge about trigger points and, and why they mattered and what to do about them and completely, you know, changed that over the course of about five years from 2010 to 2015 or so. And I've, I, you know, it's it's stabilized over the last few years, um, where I'm now, you know, where I now have this very complicated, nuanced, fence-sitting position about it. Um, but you know, really, really different from where I was uh, ten years ago. So that's a that's a a, a really big one. Um, and then I, the other one is probably you know an important honorable mention. <laughs> is I, I always paid lip service to, you know, pain is complicated, but I didn't actually get it until surprisingly recently. Uh, it probably wasn't until about 2015 that it, you know, became a little bit of a mantra that um, pain isn't just complicated and multifactorial. That's it's, that is a critical feature to understand about it, that there are many, many paths to hurting and, a lot of them are obscure, and we see we see a really strong uh, example of the idea of different people holding on to different parts of the elephant and identifying it. Lots of experts, lots of people with a lot of knowledge, um, have learned about one to three particularly interesting paths to pain, and then they stopped and. They're, they're hugging that elephant leg and saying, this is the pain elephant. And almost no one seems to have an appreciation for how many things like that there are, how many legs this damn elephant has, um, which I realize as I'm saying, it sounds a little arrogant. Like, oh, I'm, I'm the special guy who does get it. <laughs> Only I have fully. Only I have mastered, Dave. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I think a lot of people understand that it's terribly complex. What I'm trying to say is that even when you know that, you can still underestimate how many bloody different ways there are to end up in pain, and and most experts tend to be focused on only one corner of those possibilities, and uh, and so I I went through a transition from, you know, really appreciating pain. From, from oversimplifying it to appreciating it as almost always the tip of an iceberg of, of interacting factors. And- uh, Almost and all fractally too, almost fractally. So no matter, no matter how 
how uh, narrow you put your microscope. Let's say you just want to talk about something that seems kind of reflexively simple, like nociception. How does nociception happen? That's when the when the nerves sense you know that something's bad's happening and they relay a single but signal. But then you put your microscope on that and you go, oh my god, there's a whole city, there's a whole world of activity happening at this microscopic level, and you can you can do a PhD on that and not know all of it. And so you can see why there's not too many people that have yeah. vast knowledge about every different part of this, this elephant. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I'm collecting elephant legs. You know, this, I, I very much see that as my job now is I, I just, you know, once I, once I started realizing, like I went through a phase where, you know, I would discover something cool about how pain works and I, and I'd hug that elephant leg and I'd be like, this is it. This is how pain works. And, uh, and then, and then, you know, six months later, I'd be like, is that another elephant leg over there? Shit. (laughs) And, and now at some point I went to transition. Okay. Now I'm just on an elephant leg hunt. I'm looking for all of these pillars of the world of pain, as many as I can find. And I just keep finding them. I just keep finding them. Oh, look, there's another one. Oh, look, there's another thing that I, I had no idea that pathology could do that, could lead to that, could end up, you know, causing someone significant, hard to diagnose pain. Uh, there's just, there's always another one. Well, well, as, as you look at all these different perspectives on pain, I mean, I think of it as it's kind of like a, a network, you know, every, every idea that you hit on, whether it's sensitivity here or uh, sensitivity in another part of the body or fibromyalgia, any, any topic you're on, you start making connections to other topics and, and, and it's like a network. You can just, you can get to anywhere from, from anywhere. Everything's connected to everything else. You know, it's like yeah. when you go like, this is what a rabbit hole is like. You go to Wikipedia and you click on one topic and that gets you to click on another topic and it takes you somewhere else. And it's all very tantalizing and you feel like you're getting somewhere and then you end up back where you started. And there, there's no obvious place to start yep. and finish it. You're just kind of pinging around all these different nodes in, in, in a network and it just gives you the sense of a vast complexity, but but there is uh, this appreciation that certain nodes in the network keep popping up more than others, and so you give more attention to them. And one of them is the role of the immune system in the inflammation. I, I know that you, this is something that you keep talking about. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's an open question. Yeah. Want to talk about it? <laughs> Let's talk talk a little bit about it. I mean, I know that both of us have got kind of an interest in uh, uh, neuroinflammation. T- tell us just kind of a little kind of a sketch about what you're starting to learn about it and and, and uh, why you're interested in it. And feel free to connect that up to with uh, whatever kind of chronic pain problems you've been having recently. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, that's it, it, funny how pain can motivate you to learn about pain. Um, I have become a chronic pain patient in the last five years, and I have some, you know, non-trivial ongoing uh, issues with weird chronic illness. Uh, I'm nowhere near as bad off as, as some people that I know with with unexplained and undiagnosed illness, but I'm 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 also worse off than a lot of people. It's um, it's bad enough that I've you know I've had a lot of done a lot of soul searching, and I've I've transitioned from. I need to research this for my readers to, I need to research this for me. And the, one of the strongest connections between the world of unexplained illness and pain is uh, sensitization. Uh, there's, there's, there's a connection there. 
they overlap to a significant degree. And, uh, and at some point, I got quite interested in one of the mechanisms for this, maybe the mechanism for it, although it's probably not the only one. <laughs> There's never only one. Uh, neuroinflammation is a very curious mechanism for causing us significant distress when we are sick or hurt. And uh, what I knew about this before, the only thing that I really knew about this before was I, I had been fascinated by the idea that most of our symptoms when we have a cold are caused not by uh, the virus itself, but by our immune system's reaction to it. And, uh, and that's, that's quite true. It's surprising the degree to which the symptoms are dominated by immune system reaction. Uh, from there, I extrapolated to, to discover that that's a, a general principle for lots of, of, uh, of illness. And then it was a bit can of a we, mind blowing. Can we pause on that? Can we pause on that for just a second? This is kind of, this is my understanding of this. Tell me an example of my understanding of what you're saying, and tell me yeah. if it's the same as yours. You get, uh, you get a cold. You get a virus. Your immune system goes to work. The immune system takes a lot of energy to get the work done, and you feel tired. It's not so much that you feel tired because the brain is saying, "Oh my God." There's just no energy for me to do anything. It's that the brain is saying, let's make this person feel tired so he doesn't go out and do a bunch of stuff so that there's more energy left over for the immune system to get the job done. All of the bad stuff we feel, it's like the brain doing it to you on purpose to motivate you to engage in behaviors that'll help you fight the, the illness. Is that kind of the way you think about it? Is that what you mean? It's a step closer to it, but I would call that top-down modulation. Um, that would be the brain making a decision to enforce a policy, which is a thing. That's a thing that happens, top-down modulation of all kinds. You know, that's, that's a large part of what the brain is for. But in the case of illness, I don't think that the brain is being given a choice. Uh, and it's, it's not being given a choice uh, thanks to the, the magic of the mechanism of neuroinflammation. Uh, we are made to feel lousy because uh, our nervous system is literally inflamed. Uh, so the immune system reaction to an infection is uh, exploited. It's basically, it's already happening. As long as we're fighting this infection, as long as we got lots of immune system activity going on here, we might as well extend that, make, you know, since those immune cells are out and busy and doing things, let's have them hit the nervous system and essentially irritate it, which feels terrible to us. And it's what generates that feeling of uh, fragility, acute fatigue, malaise, that is really suppresses um, activity. We don't wanna do anything when we feel like that. Um, and it's, it's not the effect of the virus, not directly. It is a very deep, uh, system in all animals to encourage, shall we say, uh, limited behavior to keep us down while we need to heal. It's called uh, sickness behavior. Yeah. Sickness behavior is the label given to this. So one of my mind blowing moments was, was the realization that this happens when we're injured as well as when we're sick. When I was thinking exclusively in terms of, of illness and, and how 
uh, many of our symptoms were the were collateral damage from immune system activity. That was one thing. But then I realized, oh, but it this is actually a, a recognized phenomenon in the aftermath of injury as well. We get neuroinflamed after any major physical trauma. And my first personal experience of that was with uh, my wife's exhaustion in the aftermath of her really serious accident in 2010. Uh, when we first came back to, to Vancouver, she had been, been injured in Asia, and we spent a, a month in a hospital in Thailand while she was recovering from uh, badly smashed head and spine and pelvis and arm. When we first got back, the first doctor that we saw here in Vancouver said, you are going to be exhausted for a long time. This is a thing. When people are badly injured, there's a lot of fatigue. And you could just interpret that as, oh, it just it takes a lot of energy to um, to recover, to heal. But it's more than that. It's more profound than that. It's that the the uh, animals actually use the their immune systems as a method of irritating the nervous system into uh, feeling lousy and forcing rest and recovery. And so that results in a suite of generalized, non-specific symptoms that crop up in response to almost any significant challenge to the body. So when I first was thinking about sickness symptoms are the immune system reaction, it was just, oh, it's, you know, like we produce a lot of mucus to get rid of, you know, virus. That's true. That does cause a symptom, but it goes deeper than that. The, the activity of the immune system while we're sick is also deliberately by quote unquote design, um, suppressing activity at the same time, making us more sensitive. And there's the connection to pain. There's almost certainly an overlap between the concept of sensitization and um, sickness behavior. What, what better way to make an organism shy about moving around? What better way to force rest and recovery than to make everything hurt more than it should, more than it does normally? Um, essentially um, uh, induced sensitization. And this happens to every significantly sick or injured organism. And then the final piece of the puzzle to sort of get like, you know, the kind of moment is, and this probably doesn't just happen with major illness and trauma. It probably also happens at a more subtle level in response to triggers that we don't understand and possibly even dysfunctional triggers, uh, like a kind of temporary autoimmune disease uh, or not so temporary, that it's possible that this system can be invoked um, by variables that we really don't understand yet. In fact, it's likely. So, so, so this idea of excessive neuroinflammation initially, uh, you know, initiated by <clears throat> protective responses, uh, can start to be an explanation for chronic fatigue or chronic pain syndromes or other medically, uh, unexplained, uh, uh, symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Every person who seems to be quite sick, but there's no apparent reason why, uh, it's possible that what we're mostly seeing is the neuroinflammation, uh, which is, you know, this is something that crops up in response to 
any significant biological stress. And that's true even when we don't know what the biological stress is. Yeah. Yeah. My, that, now that uh, I think you could convince someone of, uh, of the uh, likelihood that neuroinflammation is playing a role in these, these complex conditions uh, without too much trouble, but I think it would be hard to convince the medical establishment to start being much more aware of it until they have a tool to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, I mean, people yeah. who have medically unexplained symptoms tend to get very, very bad, if not completely dehumanizing care from the medical establishment. And I think that's partly because uh, th- th- this knowledge doesn't find a home in, in the care that's being given because it doesn't turn into a saleable treatment. I mean, what's your experience with, with going to doctors with the kinds of uh, symptoms that you have? Most people have, have horrible experiences with that. Yeah. Uh, and I've had horrible experiences with it. It is a nearly impossible problem uh, for medicine. Um, there's, there's a, you know, very popular perception uh, partly, you know, one that, that physicians have created and that, and that medical science has created that medicine is really advanced and uh, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's a lot more advanced than it was 200 years ago, but it still has, it just has a long way to go. And a lot of this is economics and logistics too. So, you know, it, something, something that I, like to advise people to do is don't hound a specialist for a diagnosis. Um, Don't go in there with the assumption that they must have the skills and ability to know. The pragmatic economic reality is that every specialist is completely, thoroughly, not just consumed, but overwhelmed by caring for problems that they actually understand and can do something about. And uh, so it is it 100% is in their interests to pass the buck if you're a puzzling, weird patient. Not only, not only can they do it, they can do it and sleep well at night because they know that they don't understand you and can't help you. It's all, you could almost, you can, they can and do, you know, justify it as an ethical choice to say, I'm sorry, but you, you need to see someone else. I don't know what's wrong with you. So, for instance, uh, when I sought uh, care originally, the first neurologist that I saw, there was a really uh, uh, predictable path that it took. Um, We had two rounds of testing. Uh, One was just absolutely, you know, rote basic screening for major neurological pathology. And the second was, you know, maybe just scratching one thin layer deeper. And when, when that was done, he was done with me. I mean, I was just, there was no way in hell he was going any further. It was so obvious that, you know, well, I, I just wandered out of his scope of practice. He had, you know, a lineup of people with, um, multiple sclerosis and, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And, you know, the, the, what what is a specialist to do? He honestly didn't know what was wrong with me. What what was he going to do? And um, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell one more specific story about that. Um, one of the symptoms that I that I have, um, and it's it's just as much fun as it sounds like. I promise. Thunderclap headaches. 
these are very intense, sudden onset headaches. So I'm just walking along, minding my own business, and suddenly I have an intense disabling headache. It passes relatively quickly within minutes, but we're talking about severe pain, drops me to my knees. And um, thunderclap headaches um, have a lot of possible causes. Talk about multifactorial. There was a, there was a paper, which I happened to read um, just before seeing my neurologist that outlined, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 120 documented different causes of thunderclap headache. And I took, I took my thunderclap headaches to the neurologist and the neurologist said, well, there's no sign of a subarachnoid bleed, so therefore you're fine. That's the only cause of thunderclap headaches. <laughs> and I'm sitting there across the only, the the only cause he could do something about and get paid. <laughs> well, a, a bunch of the others are treatable too. Um, not all of them, but many. And, and I've, I've always thought that was a good symbol of what this challenge is all about. You know, this is, this was a guy, I thought he's probably a genuinely good neurologist. And uh, if I had Parkinson's disease, I would want to see him. I bet he knows way more about it than I do. <laughs> but I had just read this paper about dozens of possible causes of thunderclap headache, about half of which are ominous. And he's sitting there telling me, well, there's only one cause and you don't have it. So you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I shouldn't be too hard on the doctors who, uh, uh, who, you know, um, aren't able to solve these complex problems because no one have is, and, and you're right that the responsible thing is to, is to say, uh, I can't help you, but what kind of happens either to a lot of patients, either from individual doctors that aren't being that nice or the system collectively is that people end up getting the message that, you're just fine and it's all in your head when there's every reason to believe that that is not true at all. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's, it's when, it's when they slip over into insinuating, you know, bogus causes of your pain and suffering uh, that that's a big fail. Um, I, I had one, I think of maybe five specialists that I saw, I saw one, you know, clearly drift into that territory. Whereas the others were much more just like, I, I don't, I don't know what to do with, I, I, I don't know how to help you. And I'm busy. <laughs> I got other people I can't help. So, and I was okay with that frustrating for me personally, but I didn't, I didn't hate them for it, but yeah, it can very easily slip over into uh, very unfair and hasty judgments about the patient. And that is particularly powered by prejudices, by sexism and misogyny, by racism. Uh, it is far, far more likely, for instance, for a woman to be uh, told that it's all in her head one way or another uh, than it is for a man. And as an excellent example, um, I was telling you before the call about um, about a, a good friend of mine, a good old friend who's uh, who's very blue collar. Um, he's a mid, he's a middle aged white guy with a serious unexplained health problem. No one, none of his doctors went to psychiatry for a full year of investigating his problem. That guy was given every conceivable test 
before a doctor said, maybe you should talk to a psychiatrist, not because it's all in your head, but, you know, just to help you cope. And that, so he's incredibly frustrated by the inadequate care that he's received. And yet he went through a year of intensive investigation where every, every step of the way, the assumption was there's got to be something wrong with your body. There's no way a, a fine upstanding white middle-aged male like you could possibly be bullshitting um, or, or crazy. Uh, there must be something wrong with you. We just have to find it. That was the attitude that he got, which is pretty much the polar opposite of what a identical human being who happened to be a female would have yeah. gotten. Yeah, women are are more likely to have uh, this whole huge cluster of uh, of uh, complex problems: anxiety, depression, post traumatic yeah. stress disorder, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, yeah. autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yeah. all run together. They they seem to have a higher vulnerability to several of them. Yeah. So, uh, tell us about uh, what are your plans for the future with the website, other forms of getting information out there, uh, and interests? <laughs> well, uh, right now, I am working hard to clean up some old messes on the website. I always update. That's always been a feature of what I do, is that I maintain and improve the content. To an amazing extent, may I point out. I, I mean, as someone who has a blog and there's so many things on there that just languish for years, being yeah. misspelled and, and inaccurate and, and unchanged. I mean, the, the amount of upkeep you do on your blog is just staggering and impressive. <laughs> you can go to one of Paul's articles and it'll say at the bottom, this was updated five times most recently, you know, like last week. Yeah, I, I really got focused on updates about five years ago. Um, but the reality is I have even more to do that when you produce this much content that, that, that uh, is based on scientific information that expires, it is, a, it is an epic chore to keep up with it all. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I had deleted a bunch of, a bunch of old articles a while back. Um, I, I, I've had a habit for years of, of lots of little updates. So I just, I steadily rotate through small and medium-sized updates, constantly changing topics. And uh, recently I realized that certain kinds of content maintenance, they, it just takes more focus. It's not enough to wake up one morning and say, okay, I got to put in a couple of hours on the, uh, on the muscle soreness article. Uh, instead, I got to put in days, days. I got to get my head into it. I got to live in it for a long time and reboot the whole thing. And so that's a big focus right now. And that's, I'm going to be busy with that for quite a while. Um, so some, some major spring cleaning for, for painscience.com this year. Uh, the other big initiative uh, is that I hope to continue to spread out into more general um, pain science topics. Um, pain, pain science is, that's a, that's a big word, covers a lot of ground. And, uh, and so I want to get away from uh, the musculoskeletal corner of that and write more about topics like fibromyalgia or, you know, a recent good example is I ventured uh, um, into the topic of vaginismus, which is a, a really tricky topic for me to write about as a male. That is a, uh, that is a woman's health issue that I knew 
nothing about until a couple of months ago. Uh, so I'm spreading out and hopefully trying to provide a wider variety of useful information for my readers. Um, I think in the past, maybe some people arrived at the website and they're like, it says it's about pain science, but this is all basically tendonitis. <laughs> that, that reminds me I, I wanted to ask you uh you occasionally share some funny stories about the feedback you get from your readers i'm sure you get i'm sure you get a lot of feedback which says this site saved my life it's wonderful thank you so much you get a lot that's irate and says it's hate mail and says how dare you question uh this treatment and you and you get a lot that's just damn weird <laughs> give, give, yeah. give us an idea of what it's like to, in your inbox <laughs> my inbox is a strange place. It is fortunately, it is much less uh, of a dramatic place than it used to be. Um, I think I've really honed my my diplomacy skills, and so there's not nearly as many unhinged people in my inbox as there. <laughs> but but it's still it's still pretty common, and uh, and overwhelmingly the most common theme, the most common complaint is that I'm too negative. Right? Because I'm, you know, questioning things that people believe in and care about, and uh, you know, anyone, anyone who's got a cure story, you know, I, I had problem X and I solved it with uh, treatment Y. Um, they, they are evangelists for that for the rest of their lives, um, all without, you know, an inkling of the wider world of uh, of this field. And so when they encounter when they encounter my uh, uh, my skepticism, they are outraged. And, uh, and I get, I get told a lot, you know, that I'm negative, that I have a closed mind. Uh, but I, I, a, a lot of it is, you know, I, I think, I, I don't think unhinged is an unfair word. And I've long believed that it's pretty obvious uh, from the contents of my inbox that, you know, there's, there's a lot of mental illness out there. And I, I think a great deal of the strangest email that I get is coming from, from people who, who have genuine mental problems. Uh, it's, and it's hard, and this is, this is the thing, it's hard to tell the difference. Is this person simply a beginner <laughs> with an attitude problem or are they not well? And I, I very often get that vibe <laughs> from some of my messages. So yeah, lots of accusations of negativity and lots of, uh, one, one of my favorite things to do is uh, to look at the Google searches that people are using to come to the site. Now, oh my God, some of them are just surreal. It's so weird, the things that people type in to Google <laughs> to get to my content. And it's, you know, what what are they making of it? If, that, if your mental process was that and it led you to my stuff what are you going to do with it so it's, it's not it's not just you know evidence-based methods to treat plantar fasciitis it's <laughs> something much more no, exotic. no you know it's I, and and i should i should give you an example right now but i can't they're so weird i've got a bunch of them written down somewhere but you know like tr truly strange uh things so you know i, I, I take all comers um, but I, there's um, writing about this stuff attracts trouble. Uh, beliefs about health are so numerous. Oh my gosh, people have beliefs. Um, uh, that there's an article that's hot right now. Uh, it's making the rounds. It's an uh, an article in the New Yorker 
about um, posture correction devices. Oh yeah, probably, yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to check it out. It's um, uh, it's artful as you would expect. For the prose is sparkly, um, but it is there is not a a breath of questioning or skepticism in it. It is really just a survey of what people believe about posture. And people are saying, a lot of people are saying. A lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> saying. One of Trump's favorite phrases, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, just, there's just so many beliefs. This is my point. There's, oh, so many beliefs, 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 beliefs. Uh, people just absolutely love to believe things about um, healthcare. And it, it is routinely a belief held in the near perfect absence of, of anything resembling evidence or even a coherent rationale. And, uh, and it's, so everything I do, every single thing I write is stepping on someone's toes and it's just in, inherent in the work. Well, you've taken a tremendous amount of, uh, abuse from a lot of people over the years for for just telling the truth and, and you're a warrior for the truth and you work very hard to figure out what's true and you're smart and you're hardworking. So, I mean, I just couldn't have more admiration for what you've been doing over the years and especially in regard to one of the biggest problems we have in the world, which is people suffering in, in chronic pain and what could be uh, better or more admirable than working hard to to figure out this puzzle. So, I just want to thank you for that and, and tell you how much uh, I appreciate that and, and for coming on the show and, and talking with us. What, what can we, uh, where, where can we find you uh, on, online? Do you want to give anybody any information about uh, where they can find you or what do something you want to plug anything? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I, I mean, you said the name of the website a dozen times, uh, <laughs> but what I, what I'd like to encourage people to do, um, I, I've, uh, I've been having, I think, more and more trouble getting good constructive criticism. Um, As my reputation has grown over the years, I feel like more and more people are being more and more polite to me. Um, Too polite. (laughs) Are you requesting that people criticize you? Well, and 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 more specifically, I you know, go to painscience.com, look for something that you want to understand better. And if the question isn't well answered, or if there's something you want to know that isn't covered, or I could obviously make it a better link to share with your clients in some way, tell me. So, you know, talk to me about it. Send me an email about it. I, I would I would love to, to see that. And so it's, you know, the website is always changing and I'm actively working all the time to make it better and better. And it, it, people, people who, you know, last the last time they dove in and, and read a, you know, a good long pain science article, you know, three years ago, I guarantee you it's not the same article anymore. So come back, have a look and, uh, and, and look at it thinking now, what would make this even better to share uh, with a colleague or with a client? Well, that is pure Paul Ingraham. And thanks. <laughs> thanks for ending on the, on the essence of what you're doing with that site. And thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. Doug. It was fun.